Welcome to the Mindful News Podcast. I'm your host, Ski, and we're back with the first episode of 2022, which we'll continue to release on the first Thursday of every month. We're so pleased with the amazing insights shared by our alumni of wonderful guests last year and the great feedback from our listeners. If you're new to the podcast, we highly recommend and invite you to check out some of our previous episodes with some of the greats like John Kabat-Zinn, Daniel Goldman on emotional intelligence, Mathieu Ricard, aka the happiest man alive, and Chad Meng-Tang, who almost single-handedly drove Google to be one of the leading companies to promote mindfulness and well-being internally. On today's podcast, we talk with therapist and coach Russ Harris. He's also the author of many self-help books, most notably The Happiness Trap. This is a wonderful book that my co-host Adam Stolleman suggested I read, following our many conversations on happiness and mindfulness. So the two of us get to spend an hour with Russ and we dig into the questions that matter to us. Ross gives a wonderful introduction into his youth and the struggles he had that led him getting his medical degree to becoming a GP, which led to researching into the psychological side of life and eventually acceptance and commitment therapy known as ACT, which eventually led him to write his wonderful books. I would define values as your heart's deepest desires for how you want to behave as a human being how you want to treat yourself, how you want to treat others, how you want to treat the world around you. If you're really being true to yourself and the person that you really want to authentically be. Caveman ancestors, oh look, there's a saber-toothed tiger or a woolly mammoth or Mm -hmm. an approaching fire. Um, We have the same reaction in our bodies physically if, oh, here's the boss in a bad mood, I I might lose my job. (laughs) we've got a a mind that is basically predisposed to conjure up pain from the past find problems in the present and conjure up fears about the future and that's a normal human mind (laughs) and mindfulness can help but it doesn't stop your mind from doing that you know there are timestamps in the description for your convenience so you can skip to sections that interest you the most but this is a truly great one to listen through to completion Ross ends on talking about what happiness truly is and what matters most to him, so make sure to check that out. We've got some wonderful guests lined up for 2022, including the father of modern mindfulness, John Kabat-Zinn, and really excited about what the future holds. For more podcasts, videos, and guided meditations, check out mindfulnews.uk. Joining us today over Zoom is Russ Harris. Now, he's a renowned trainer in ACT, a therapist and a coach, and also a wonderful author. Having written many self-help books and none more inspirational and globally prolific than The Happiness Trap, How to Stop Struggling and Start Living. So welcome, Russ, and thank you so much for for joining us today. It's really an honor. Oh, thank you. (laughs) Thanks for inviting me. It's lovely to be here. And co-hosting with me today is Adam Stolleman, a partner at Triton Exec Recruitment based out of London. And it's a big reason why we're, we're, we're actually speaking today, which I'll get into. But good morning, Adam. I know you're, you're very excited about this one. I am. Morning, Guy. Morning, Russ. Thanks for having me. So Adam and I were digging into a conversation a while back about mindfulness, about life, about happiness. And he mentioned a book that had heavily inspired him and that I should read it. So that, that being The Happiness Trap. So I did one better. I reached out to its author to come and join us for a chat. So you can imagine that we're both quite thrilled to be speaking with you today and talking about really what matters most to us. So I've been learning about mindfulness for over 10 years and teaching it for about seven. And I think for me, The Happiness Trap is probably one of the best books that I've read in this field. You know, of course there are great classics like many that John Kabat-Zinn, my good friend have written or Daniel Goldman's Altered Traits. But your book, Ross, had my head nodding for me almost the entire way through just agreeing with all the points so firstly thank you for a great read and also thanks to to bev for the the wonderful illustrations and just to be clear i went through the illustrated version whereas adam went through the the original copy (laughs) so we've got two different comparisons you know two different versions of your book you you took the soft option (laughs) Well, along with all the pictures <laughs> yeah, well, well the most modern option at the time i know there's a there's a newer version of it which we're going to get into in a bit yeah. but before we dig into why this is one of the best books for me i'd love your help to give an introduction to you just to help our listeners get some perspective and a bit of a backdrop to this conversation 
maybe a little bit about your upbringing, upbringing some of the lessons, struggles, and even inspirations that um, led you to this path of writing, coaching, and ultimately helping others, if you don't mind. Yeah, sure. Well, um, so I grew up in Liverpool in the uh, UK. Liverpool. Nice. Yeah, and uh, I, uh, I had a pretty, um, pretty shitty childhood, to be honest, um, but uh, didn't kind of realize how it had affected me until in my, uh, in my teens, I started really suffering a lot from anxiety. I went to university in Newcastle-upon-Tyne um, to do my medical degree, and um, <laughs> I was a very heavy drinker uh, when I was at university in Newcastle, which was actually quite common amongst medical students. <laughs> it, uh, Got me into trouble. I did. Uh, I did even get admitted to uh, to emergency with alcohol poisoning on one occasion. Wow. And um, you know, I graduated from med school uh, with this degree and this status as a doctor. And I, you know, I couldn't understand why everyone else in my year was all so excited and pleased they'd become doctors, and I was like, oh, you know. <laughs> this is such an anti-climax I don't even really want to be doing this you know um it was it was something that I had kind of been brainwashed and forced and coerced into doing by by my parents it wasn't really something that, that was you know <laughs> it wasn't me kind of really living the dream it was um fulfilling uh, parental expectations and I I stayed working as a doctor for several years um and I got pretty depressed during that time, um, quite depressed, quite anxious. Um, uh, I cut back on the drinking, but I turned to eating as a way of pushing away my, my painful feelings. And I started stacking on the weight. Um, I moved to Australia um, thinking that would solve all my problems, but it didn't. <laughs> Um, as, a, as a GP working here in Australia, I was so depressed. I was eating uh, five packets of double-coated chocolate Tim Tams a day. So these are a big, thick chocolate biscuits, a bit like uh, penguins in the UK. And I don't know what they would be like in the, in the USA, maybe like chocolate-coated Oreos or something, you know. Uh, and so I was kind of... Um, I was now in my mid-20s and I was just stacking on the weight. I was 103 kilograms. So that's wow. you know, 20 kilograms more than I am today. Uh, and I was just so miserable. And I thought I could, you know, like according to society, I've, I've, I've got this degree, I've got status, I've got a good income, I've got a, this cool job. Why am I so miserable? And it was really just starting to explore um, through self-help books and then through therapy, I just started to become very interested in the psychology of health and well-being. And while I was doing that, my, my medical practice started to change and I started spending much more time talking to my patients about their psychological side of life and their stresses. And um, the, uh, you know, I became progressively less interested in the physical side of medicine. And eventually um, that led to a change in career. I kind of um, switched from medicine to become a therapist. Um, uh, so it was kind of a, a very gradual process, really. And um, as a therapist, uh, I, you know, the, the first model I trained in was CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy. Yep which I, you know, had a lot of time for, but I didn't think that it really encapsulated um, lots of the problems that people really struggle with. Um, uh, and so um, I started looking at other things and discovered the work of John Kabat-Zinn, who I believe you know. <laughs> um, shout, out, I, shout out to JKZ. Yeah, uh, JKZ. Okay. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I thought his his stuff on mindfulness was was wonderful, um, but um, you know, as a as a therapist trying to teach mindfulness meditation to your clients is a hard sell. Um, and at the same time, I also became interested in Viktor Frankl's work on logotherapy and finding meaning and purpose in life. Um, mm -hmm. Viktor Frankl, you know, his most famous book, Man's Search for Meaning. Love that book, yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. And so I was trying to kind of combine these approaches together cbt and frankel's work and kabat zinn's work and um, i wasn't doing it very well and then somebody said to me um oh you should check out acceptance and commitment therapy um 
which uh, for sure is the official abbreviation is ACT. ACT, yeah. yeah. <laughs> if you call it, it's created by a guy called Steve Hayes. And if you if you call it ACT within earshot of Steve Hayes, you'll see him start twitching and convulsing. Oh, really? Okay, okay. It's the faux pas. Okay. Yeah, right. yeah, exactly. So it's ACT. Um, ACT. And, uh, and, and when I just, you know, came across this ACT stuff, I just instantly fell in love with it. It was, it was like a hallelujah moment that clouds parted there were angels flying around you know maybe i've been smoking too much dope i don't know but it was a kind of you know one of those uh, amazing moments where i was like oh my god this is just absolutely amazing mm -hmm. and so uh, within about a month of reading the textbook um i flew over to the usa and did some training with the folks that created it and then i thought i want to spread this to the world so i, I came back to australia and wrote The Happiness Trap, and um, the rest is history. Incredible. Well, Adam, you've been meditating yourself for about six years, and we've been speaking regularly about the way that it's changed your life from the skills, you know, to observe thoughts throughout the day, right? And before they can manifest themselves and hijack the situation, you can bring your attention back to the present and back to your task at hand. And you've mentioned how impactful this has been in your life. So when reading The Happiness Trap for you, what was what about it was so profound and so inspiring? Um, it's interesting, having read it twice, once almost 10 years ago, and then again two or three years ago, through a different lens, different point of my life with children, etc. I, I got very different things from it both times. But I think initially, I think it was the first time that I read something on this topic, which I'm interested in that was broad by design. Um, it wasn't conceptual. It was very practical. Um, and somebody like myself, it, it was very clear, you know, these are the steps to take across a variety of different kind of domains rather than it being all about meditation. I think, you know, you talk in the book that it's not about meditation, but meditation kind of accentuates ACT or ACT, should I say. Um, so yes, yeah, so um, so for me, it was it was that it was so broad. I think by by nature, um, and and I'd be really interested, Russ, to understand um, if that was by design. That was a purpose choice, uh, um, an intentional choice. Uh, you know, the kind of the act model is is really very pragmatic. How do we get this out to as many people as possible? Uh, and so, you know, um, if you wanted to get everybody exercising, you wouldn't tell them you've got to go to the gym for 40 minutes a day. You get a lot of resistance, a lot of dropout. You, you know, would you be willing to go for a five minute walk at lunchtime, take the stairs instead of the lift, park your car a bit further away from the supermarket? And so ACT kind of takes that approach, um, and that's very much the approach in the book. Let's have a look at little ways to bring mindfulness into your day and values into your day, um, because you need both. You know, mindfulness without values is like a, a ship without a rudder. You know, you need those values for direction and motivation. And so, you know, how can we bring these in in little ways? And then, you know, a good analogy is, is like lifting weights in the gym. Uh, you know, you start off with the light weights and slowly increase your strength. And then you move on to the bigger weights and the more, you know, challenging exercises. And I, I think for a lot of people, maybe not everyone, but for a lot of people, certainly that, you know, trying to go first into, into full-on formal mindfulness meditation for 40 minutes a day is a big ask for a lot of people. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and a lot of people started and drop out very quickly. Whereas if we go the other way, let's look at little non-meditative ways that we can bring mindfulness into our day. Then we can kind of build on that and take it as far as we want to go with it. You know, so it's just pragmatism. Yeah, <laughs> yeah very, very interesting. And I think from, from my perspective also, actually being in control and it being kind of your responsibility like you said to set those values and to you know be accountable um i guess the commitment part of of the um of the sessions and that for me was was very useful because that that's how i operate i'm interested from your perspective though people who maybe don't operate that way aren't wired that way who you know, maybe aren't as structured. How would you advise them 
to apply these methodologies? Well, um, again, you know, it, it, it's it, it's really like building any new skill. If you're uh, if you're if you're lucky enough that you've grown up in an environment or a school or a workplace that has kind of shaped those behaviors and you're used to setting goals and motivating yourself, great. But a lot of us haven't really experienced that. And so it's a skill that you actually need to invest time in and, and learn the steps. And you know, the, the, uh, the key to effective goal setting for most of us uh, is to think small. You know, probably the, right. the biggest problem is that people just think way too big and then they either get overwhelmed and give up or they try to succeed at something that's just too big a step and, and they fail. So um, it is a skill. Uh, and if it's not new to you, you know, people quite often complain, oh, this, this isn't me, or I don't do this, or this feels weird. And I say, well, that's good. Uh, that's good. because uh, That means you're learning something new. That means you're stepping out of your comfort zone. You know, if, uh, if you said to me, oh, this feels really comfortable and easy peasy, I'm totally at home, I'd be saying, well, there's no personal growth happening then, you know, there's no therapy happening, you know. So yeah, uh, it's a skill, uh, a very learnable skill. And like any new skill, it takes, uh, takes practice, you know, one step at a time. Yeah, thanks for that, Ross. And for me, what I like to see in anybody's work or teaching about mindfulness and how the mind works is always to begin with the why do we think? You know, what is a thought? Uh, where does it come from? And this kind of part of my, my first week of teaching as well. And there's something that is beautifully described in your books. Uh, and what I love about it is that it really helps to take away some of the blame that we have, you know, and like, why am I thinking this? And, uh, and helps to normalize them you're not alone, we're all going through this, right? So would you mind sharing some of the key concepts in, like, in this human evolution in respect to how we look out for danger and how, in fact, it's become a wonderful insight for us today and a wonderful evolutionary gift, but manifests itself in these negative and often repetitive ways of thinking? Yeah, well, I think it's interesting to look at the the evolutionary history of of Homo sapiens. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Uh, so scientists debate the figure, but probably about three hundred thousand years ago, Homo sapiens arises in the fossil record, and at that point in evolutionary history, we've got the same basic needs as every other land-based mammal: food, water, shelter, and sex. Um, not all at the same time, uh, gets a bit messy. Um, but those are the kind of primary needs, food, water, shelter, sex. But none of those things the are- Maslow, The Maslow base requirements, right? Kind of. Uh, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and, uh, but none of those things are important if you get killed. So the top priority of the human mind, the job it's got to do better than any other job is to stop you getting killed. So how does a mind do that? It continually scans for danger. Is there anything here that could hurt me or harm me in any way? Is there a, that shadow on the horizon? Is that a friend or a foe uh, at the back of that cave? Is, is there a bear? You know, that rustling sound in the bushes. Is that a sparrow or a, a saber-toothed tiger? And if there ever was a cave person who was like Mr. or Mrs. Positive Thinker, always optimistic, <laughs> you know, yeah. They didn't live very long. They'd be like, oh, yeah. yes, that rustling sound in the bushes, that's just a sparrow. Yeah. Chomp! You know, that <laughs> that's not your ancestor. You came from the ancestor that was always anticipating the worst. Take a step back from the bushes until you know what's making that noise, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and so as a, a result of this continual scanning for danger, um, you know, 300,000 years later, our minds are continually doing this. I, I mean, have you ever been awake at three o'clock in the morning with your mind anticipating things that could hurt you or harm you? Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I, almost everybody has, right? You know, and this is, this is your mind doing its job, trying to keep you safe. But, but part of the problem is that 300,000 years ago, your group was very small. There were just a few people in your group, whereas now your group is massive, uh, not just the people you know personally, but through the media and television and books and movies. So um, one thing that's essential uh, to ensure that you survive is you have to fit in with your group, right? Because if, if the group kick you out, 
you're not going to live very long. The wolves will have you for, for lunch. If you survive lunch with the wolves, the bears will get you for dinner. You've got to fit in with the group. So how does your mind make sure you fit in with the group? It compares you to every other member. Am I fitting in? Am I contributing enough? Am I measuring up? Am I doing anything that might get me thrown out or rejected? You know, does this sound a bit like your mind at times? <laughs> it's certainly uh, my mind sounds like that quite a lot, right? And, and most of us, you know, uh, your mind starts comparing you to other members of the group uh, from a very young age. Um, and of course, when you're a toddler, this is, you know, everybody in your group is bigger, stronger, smarter, faster than you. So as a result of this, um, most of us from a very young age start to develop the not good enough story. Other people are better mm -hmm. than me. Right, you know. right. Mm -hmm. So that's a normal human mind. That's um, if your mind's worrying, judging you. And one more thing I'll just mention if I've got time. Um, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, is back in cave person days, if, if you survived something dangerous or life-threatening, there's a huge advantage in being able to replay that event and figure out how you survived it so that you're better prepared next time. You know where, what to do differently, what to stay away from, how to mm -hmm. deal with it. Yeah. And so we now have 300,000 years later, this tendency to replay and ruminate on all sorts of painful events from the past, even though most of the time there's nothing that we can really learn from them. But, you know, we yeah. can be 80 years old and replaying those memories of, of childhood trauma with, with nothing to learn from them, just pain. Yeah. So as a result of this, we've got a, a mind that is basically predisposed to conjure up pain from the past find problems in the present and conjure up fears about the future. And that's a normal yeah. human mind yeah. <laughs> and mindfulness can help, but it doesn't stop your mind from doing that. You know, but what is beautiful about that is that even before we begin to learn the mindfulness techniques, it's like, ah, okay. So we understand that when we, why are we having so many negative thoughts? Not only, and just to go back to me personally, it's like, I was very aware of the, is that a shadow or a saber-toothed tiger? Is that a stick or a snake? You know, I was very mm -hmm. aware of that concept and like, oh, cool. but when I read, when I was going through this, the illustrated version, you threw, you threw in the idea of comparisons to other within a community, which I hadn't thought of before. And this idea being that, yes, the, the chances of surviving alone versus surviving within a community, there's so much more benefit to being in the community and ergo, being in the community was they're the one they're the genes that survived right and that, that's how our species survived by being in this community and so when you even look at social media for example and you know people are put, posting pictures of their best selves and you know on expensive holidays you know before i had that impression oh they're just showing off and narcissism but you know just back to you how much of that is actually narcissism and just showing off versus I'm just trying to fit into my community and just doing what the what is expected of the tribe as a you know a virtual signaling of success. Yeah, well, that's a great question. Uh, I think it must vary enormously from person to person, you know. Uh, yeah. I'm sure there are some people that are like, "Oh, look at me," but there are others that this is just the the social thing, you know. I, uh, I, I don't do it because I'm actually like uh, afraid if I'm on holiday having a great time and, it, and I post something that I'm going to make people jealous. So I actually, uh, oh. well, I'm quite happy to like other people's posts. Um, I don't think I've ever uh, on social media posted anything wonderful that I'm doing. Uh, <laughs> You know, um, but uh, I, yeah, I mean, it just it, people's motivations are obviously um, uh, very enormously, but th there's no doubt that kind of um, that effect is so of seeing someone else's life and thinking that's the perfect life and they've got this yeah. great life and comparing your life to their Facebook or Instagram stream is, is a recipe for pain and suffering for sure, you know. Yeah. Well, what about in you know, taking this in, in, into the workplace where, you're, you know, myself and Adam spend most of our lives, right? That, that's where our mind nine to five from Monday to Friday is. And so this idea of needing to fit in and compare ourselves with other, you know, is that one of the big reasons for this stress and anxiety that we're seeing in the workplace, right? And the fear of being fired 
is akin to almost a life and death fear, right? Because you're being excommunicated or being released from your tribe or from your community. And they also say that a meeting with the boss can imitate the same stress responses to a life and death situation. Is this also this evolutionary byproduct or a result of, of that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, so again, our, our caveman ancestors, uh, look, there's a saber-toothed tiger or a woolly mammoth or mm -hmm. an approaching fire. Um, we have the same reaction in our bodies physically if, oh, here's the boss in a bad mood, I, I might lose my job. Um, <laughs> yeah. and, and again, of course, even losing your job, then there's the social thing. What are my friends and family going to say? Am I going to be able to support my kids? Yep, and, yep, yep, yep. You know, all of that stuff comes in. I mean, it's incredibly uh, anxiety provoking. And I think, um, you know, uh, uh, there certainly seems that social media is, is feeding that social anxiety um, because there's just this instant and constant comparison the whole time. But, you know, yeah. I lose my job and, you know, I, what if everyone finds out about that? Oh dear, yeah. Yeah. You're listening to the Mindful News Podcast, and I'm your host, Guy. And alongside me is Adam with Triton Exec, and we're talking with the Happiness Trap author, Russ Harris. In the second half of the podcast, we dig into getting in touch with your values, being who you really want to be when you're doing stuff that really matters to you, self-acceptance, understanding that we will screw up from time to time, the not good enough story, and we end on what happiness really is, and the Alan Watts' Life is a Dance. We also touch on Ross's updated book, 14 Years On, with 50% new material and a focus on self-compassion. Visit mindfulnews.uk for all video content. You mentioned in your, in your book, Ross, you know, one in 10 has clinical depression. One in five yeah. is depressed at some time. One in four has or has had an addiction. And 30% of the adult population has a recognized physiological disorder. Can you just talk a little bit about that? Because reading that at the first glance, wow. Yeah. I had no idea that it was that intrusive and that pervasive in society. But number two, that that's actually pretty normal then. You know, if you're going through that, then you know what? <laughs> yeah. So is everyone else, you know. Sure. You know, get to yeah, the back well, of the queue, right? Yeah. I mean, those stats are scary. So it's uh so, you know, that figure that 30% have a, a psychological disorder, uh, that's, a, that's the lower end of the figure. It's about 30 to Conserva 50. Conservative. Right? <laughs> yeah. Very conservative um, on the scale, yeah. Exactly. You know, and like the World Health Organization is kind of saying that, that depression is one of the uh, most expensive, debilitating diseases in the world. And, you know, some of the scariest statistics uh, that um, one in two people will at some point become actively suicidal for a period of wow. two weeks. Half. So half, yeah, the half the population. Yeah. So wow. just think of your friends or family. Yeah. Half or yourself. Of them yeah. Yourself will yeah. become yeah. actively yeah. suicidal at some point for two weeks or more, you know. So it, it, it's, again, this is. This is a normal human mind that's doing its stuff. Uh, it, it, that's the key uh, there. It's normal. I think when we normalize it, it's not just me suffering individually. We're all going through that. But the more we understand that we all are, the more relief. Okay, this isn't just me. This is standard. And I think that's exactly. what you know, the beauty of you, know, you highlighting that in your book. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, Russ, so just, just link to that. Um, the, the kind of creation of your own values that you talked about, what's important to you, is such an important factor in kind of being able to separate the things that actually aren't that important, right, that are on your mind. And linking back, if I may, to the workplace and the work that I do with people and with companies, um, how... And thinking more around the thought process that people go through not just about being you know exited from companies but taking new roles and thinking about new opportunities right with with businesses relocations etc cetera, etc cetera. um could you describe kind of how to create your value set how do you build that list of what's important to you that will enable you to kind of make good and better decisions about employment yeah sure um you know, there's there's different 
definitions of values floating around out there. Uh, so the way we define values in ACT may be a little bit different to, to some uh, other models. Um, I, I would define values as your heart's deepest desires for how you want to behave as a human being, how you want to treat yourself, how you want to treat others, how you want to treat the world around you, if you're really being true to yourself and the person that you really want to authentically be. I would define values as your heart's deepest desires for how you want to behave as a human being, how you want to treat yourself, how you want to treat others, how you want to treat the world around you, if you're really being true to yourself and the person that you really want to authentically be. That's what I would call values. So they're very different to goals in that they're not about what we're trying to achieve. They're about how I want to behave, you know, how I want to treat myself and others. And, um, you know, the, there's probably, I mean, there's just dozens and dozens of different methods of getting in touch with your values. But I think one of, one of the simplest ways is just to remember a time when you were with somebody that you really care about somebody that you like or love or respect very much and you were doing something uh, together that was meaningful enjoyable fun pleasurable it was quality time and, and just get a sense of what that quality time was like between you and someone else and then have a look at yourself in that interaction how are you treating the other person you know and whatever example you've picked, you're probably treating this person maybe with love or kindness or respect or interest or openness. Or maybe you're being playful or fun loving. Maybe you're being generous or kind. Uh, maybe you're being appreciative or grateful. Uh, the chances are the qualities that you're putting into that interaction are your core values. This is kind of you being who you really want to be when you're with people that you really care about doing stuff that really matters to you. And this is the, the, the um, I don't know what the word is, but uh, it's kind of when you're with someone that you really care about doing something that you really enjoy, it's kind of easy to live your values. But when you're in a really tough, challenging, difficult situation, especially if you're with someone who pushes your buttons or you find difficult, then what happens is you tend to lose your values. You kind of get hooked by your thoughts and feelings and jerked into patterns of behavior that really pull you away from those values. Um, and so, you know, I, I think a good way to do it is just think about any any important relationship. Uh, you know, so just think of yourself. Uh, if you if you if you if you've got a partner, for example, you could say, "When am I being the partner that I really want to be?" You know, the partner that I wouldn't mind wouldn't mind a video of this going on Facebook. <laughs> The Instagram and, shot, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and when yeah. am I being the partner that I would be horrified? To, mm. to see the video get out on Facebook. And both of those can tell you what your values are. The, the, the you know, the horror, the horrific version, it will think what's the opposite of this, you know? And, and the great version is, ah, this is who I really want to be. Uh, I don't know if I've answered your question. Um, yeah, it's fantastic. Thank you. Um, very much so. I think a lot of people will focus on timing, compensation, you know, impact on their lives rather than actually going a bit deeper and discovering what's actually truly important. And I think the the title, the happiness trap, I think that's what actually kind of trapped me in the first place. That, um, you know, people seek all these different things, as you mentioned, right? Whether it be eating, drinking, exercise, meditation, right? Obsessing about things when actually it is a bit of a trap and it's a lot more holistic than, than that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if I just come back to the, the point I made earlier that kind of mindfulness without values is like a ship without a rudder. So there's lots of people out there that are doing their mindfulness meditation. Um, but then, you know, they'll they'll go out to lunch and be rude and aggressive to the waiter or, you know, they'll just kind of uh, it's like the, the meditation is something that they they pocket away. Oh, yeah, I've done my meditation for the day. I'm a good person. But no, you know, that's just one piece of this. It's uh, you've got this whole life there. And, uh, you know, what are you going to put into your life um, is so important. Yeah, it's like going to the gym for half an hour and then thinking you can eat whatever you want. 
for the rest of the day because <laughs> you've been to the gym for half an hour in the morning. I have been guilty of that. <laughs> yeah, Especially... I think like, we all have. We all have. <laughs> um, Russ, as a, as a parent, a bit of a, a change of, of course, but as a parent, I mentioned kind of reading the book the second time through a different different lens. And, and you mentioned how, you know, we, we make these statements to children, you know, stop crying, pull yourself together as if, you know, sorting your emotions out and thoughts out is so easy, right? Whereas adults, we know that it's, it's definitely not easy to do. do. Do you have any practical advice for parents in communicating with, with children? Um, and, you know, not only for the relationship that you have, but also for the child's benefit in terms of their own mindfulness journey? Yeah, you know, I mean, it's such an important point, isn't it? Most of us have done this and most of us have had our parents say these things to us, you know, there's no use crying over spilt milk and take that look off your face and, uh, you know, man up. Man up, Man up. Or, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, this kind of stuff, cheer up, it may never happen, plenty more fish in the sea, <laughs> it was only puppy love, you know, yeah. stick the stones will break your bones, but names will never help you, and it, it, it's like, the yeah, the, the message to kids is it's easy to control your feelings, mm. um, and because we just see people's exteriors, uh, and we don't see really what they're feeling inside, kids do have that illusion that adults have got a lot of control over mm. how they feel um and uh you know as a kid let's i'm gonna please forgive me uh i'm gonna i'm gonna do a little bit of stereotyping here so hold it lightly um yeah. as a kid you go running into the kitchen and you see mum a flood of tears pouring down her face um stereotypically mum's likely to say everything's okay, go out and play, or, you know, I've been chopping mm. onions, you know, it's highly unlikely that mum says, Johnny, this is called sadness. Mm-hmm. You see these tears streaming down my face. This is a sign of sadness, which is one of the nine basic human emotions that we all feel repeatedly throughout our life. You know, it's, it's so unlike, you know, and if, if mum did say that, Johnny, you'd end up in therapy anyway. So, you know, <laughs> You can't win, um, but but we don't really get these messages. And so um, I, I think what parents can do, if your kids are young enough, then you, you can start just being a bit more open with them, saying it's normal to feel sad. Um, yeah. It's normal to feel angry. Mum, mummy feels angry. Dad feels angry. You know, uh, uh, I, I remember when my son was seven uh, and he didn't want to go upstairs because it was dark upstairs and he was like, oh, there'd be monsters, you know, and this kind of stuff. And the voice in my head said, don't be silly. There's nothing to be scared of. But luckily, I heard the voice in my head. And so I didn't say it out aloud. Uh, and what I said instead was, um, you know what, when I was your age, I was afraid of going uh, exactly. upstairs. You know, mm. it's normal to feel scared. Where are you feeling that? Yeah, kind of a bit, your heart's racing a bit and you feel a bit queasy in your tummy. Yeah, so it's kind of like that's called fear or anxiety. And, mm. and notice that you don't have to let that emotion stop you from doing what you want. You can still mm. walk up the stairs, even though you're feeling scared. Just try moving your arms and your mm. legs, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so little things like that but i mean the key message is these feelings are normal mummy and daddy have them and you you've got a choice about what you do with them you don't have to let these feelings jerk you around and you know um you can feel angry but still talk calmly you can uh, feel scared but still do the thing you're afraid of lovely so. right. well, easier easier said than done it, it, yeah, 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 yeah i was gonna but, say but important nonetheless Right. <laughs> well, I, I'll I'll tell you another story with my son. This was, uh, oh god, it was it was about he was about ten, and I can't even remember what he did, but it just I was furious, and I was screaming and shouting, and oh, you know, I just turned into this silverback gorilla. And when I calmed down, uh, I, I came to him afterwards and I said, "Look, I am so sorry for that. You know, it's like." It's crazy. I write all these books and I tell people about how to <laughs> emotions and you know and what oh my god, what what would what would they think if they saw me speaking to you that way and they heard mm-hmm. me saying those things to you? What would yeah. what would they think if if uh, if they if they heard me, you know, shouting mm-hmm. at you and losing yes, my yes. temper like this? 
and he looked at me and he said, I'm going to tell them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know, so it, it's, it's, it's not easy to do this stuff. We're, we're human. And of course there'll be times that we, uh, we, we all get hooked and we all kind of uh, will get pulled away from our values as, as parents, um, you know. Well, and as teachers, not only as parents, as teachers, but it's like my wife will say, oh, you're a mindfulness coach. Why are you, you getting upset about this? And it's like, <laughs> just because you're a mindfulness coach doesn't mean that, you know, you're like this, 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 like this enlightened <laughs> being where you don't get affected by anything. But it's yeah, this idea of, okay. we're gonna we're going to continually apply we're going to try and apply the techniques and the practice, right? So that we can be more grounded and the mm -hmm. equanimity, but we're likely going to experience the same problems and anxieties as everyone else. It's just like we, we are developing these tools that in those moments, we try to apply them. It may not be always yeah. success successfully as we would like, <laughs> but... It's so true. Like, I've yeah. heard my, my son has made many comments like that to me over the years. <laughs> and then yeah. I say, yeah, Almost frustrating. It's like, well... You, Aren't you the coach? Aren't you this mindfulness and ACT <laughs> expert or guru? And it's like, yeah. That is a big part of that too, is also self-acceptance. You know, uh, we want to, we don't want to get into perfectionistic ideas. We will all screw up over and over and over again. And, and when we yeah. do screw up, the most useless thing we can do is beat ourselves up. You know, that's, um, yeah. that's the default setting of your mind. It pulls out a big stick, starts beating you up, telling you they're not good enough story. But, uh, you know, I say to my clients, if beating yourself up was a, a good way to change behavior, wouldn't you be perfect by now? <laughs> yeah. you know? so, uh, so uh, certainly uh, what's much better than beating yourself up is to unhook from those stories and practice self-compassion, yes. you know, acknowledge you're in pain, you're hurting, you screwed up, be kind mm -hmm. to yourself and then come back to your values. Yeah. Well, there's a famous Alan Watts video clip where he talks about life being this dance and that from a very early age, we're brought up to believe that we have to go to school, get a degree, then you'll be happy. Then get a job, then get your promotion, then you'll be happy. And then become the boss, buy a nice house, etc. But I to find that once you've achieved this, you've been duped. You know, you're not any more happy than you were before. But the point of life was that it was a dance and that you missed it. And the point all along was to be dancing, right? And that, you know, letting your happiness be defined by obtaining something in the future was actually incorrect, right? So we see this on Instagram, having nice cars, expensive houses, being a celebrity and how great that can be. So I'd love for you to share your wisdom a little bit and help explain to our listeners what happiness really is and how the nice cars, expensive houses are a great nice to have right you know you mentioned your left and your right hand column of like you know the the values versus the goals and more the relationships versus the material wealth you know i think that would be an interesting way that we can kind of like close out this podcast yeah well you know it's uh, <laughs> alan watts summarized it all so well um it's uh, genius yeah yeah i i, I guess it's um you know the the story that uh, that I put in in the happiness trap is there's two kids in the back of a car, and um, mum's driving them to Disneyland, and it's a three hour car journey, and one kid is totally goal focused. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? How much longer? When are we going to be there? It's all about the goal. You know, I'm not going to be happy till I achieve that goal. The second kid has got the same goal, wants to get to Disneyland. But the second kid's actually enjoying the journey. He's looking out of the window, playing I Spy with my little eye, spotting interesting cars on the freeway, interesting billboards and posters. And he's actually having, a, 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 you know, a, a very, he's appreciating the journey. He's getting a lot out of it. Whereas mm. the first kid's just chronic frustration. They both reached Disneyland at the same time. And they both have a great time at Disneyland because they got to achieve their goal. But on the way back, the first kid, totally about the goal. Are we home yet? Are we home yet? How much longer? I want to get home, you know, irritating everyone in the car, frustrated. The second kid's looking out of the windows, noticing the world looks different at nighttime, yeah. the lights in the farmhouses, the cat's eyes on the freeway, you know, he's actually appreciating the journey. Yeah. The car breaks down on the way to Disneyland halfway. 
Well, both kids are really disappointed because they didn't get to achieve their big goal. But yeah. the second kid at least had a, a, a rewarding journey up to that point. And when the pickup truck tows them home, you know, the first kids, oh, it's not fair. I want to go to Disneyland. I want to go to Disneyland. When are we going to go? And the second kids looking out of the window and noticing how cool it is when you sit up in the front of a pickup truck higher above the rest yeah. of the traffic. So, you know, that's the difference in, in, in the goal focused life. It's chronic frustration, little moments of, of joy. If you actually do achieve the goal, that lasts for a short space of time and then more frustration, disappointment, lack, where is it I'm mm. missing out? Whereas in the values-focused life, it's kind of how can I live my values every step of the way? What are, you know, the, the second kid's living his values of, I guess, playfulness, curiosity, uh, you know, uh, you know, how can I live my values every step of the way? And then when I, uh, you know, the paradox is that you're actually more likely to achieve your goals if you're motivated by your values because they give yeah. you inspiration and motivation. But the, 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 the great bonus is that, there, of course, we're all going to experience times when our, we fail at our goals or when they're a long way off. And so how can we appreciate the, the richness of life when that's the case? Let's come back to those values. You know, I, uh, yeah, I want to go to Disneyland, but I can live my values of curiosity and playfulness in this car right now by playing I Spy with my little eye. I wanted to um, congratulate you on your latest book release. You know, it's an updated version of The Happiness Trap, a total rewrite of the book, as you call it, with more than 50% new material. Great timing as we emerge out of lockdown. There we go. The, the updated version. So what differences are there to the original? And um, why did you feel the need to make these edits? And kind of what the, what, what's been the response? Uh, well, I, I wasn't expecting to do such a big rewrite. I thought I would just, you know, be able to tweak a few things, uh, but I was quite uh, really surprised to see. I mean, it's, it's, it's 14 years since I wrote that, and I was surprised to see how much the way that I think about... Multi-million, um, multi-million sales, you know? No, no, what? <laughs> I wish. One, one million. <laughs> one million. One million, <laughs> one million and counting, yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so I was just surprised at how much I changed in the way that I describe this stuff and think about it and teach it and write about it. Um, but I, I was also, um, uh, like over the last 14 years, the way that I do act, uh, self-compassion has become such a big part of it now. So uh, whereas that was kind of hovering in the background in the first edition, in this edition, it's like center stage. You know, we all hurt, right. we all suffer. Right. Um, and there's lots of other things. I mean, uh, you know, lots different skills, different strategies, different, uh, I think, much more effective ways of, of learning mindfulness. I, I learned a lot because I wrote a protocol for the World Health Organization, uh, taking ACT into refugee camps. Nice, uh, nice. And, and the, the WHO said, you know, it can't involve meditation because in many cultures, meditation is a kind of religious thing from yeah, uh, the religious connotation. Yeah. OK. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so uh, the other thing is you, you probably know that, that people suffering from trauma, there are some uh, risks with mindfulness meditation. Yes. anyway. Yes. So yeah. I had to develop these easy to learn mindfulness practices that involve lots of movement lots of eyes open lots of social engagement um, uh, because when you know most of those people in refugee camps have got a lot of trauma and uh, if you were to do like sitting still with your eyes closed focusing on your breath very high risk that they would have sure. flashbacks. Wow, or that's interesting. That's interesting. So I've kind of that experience has kind of altered a lot of the stuff that's in yeah, the book. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. You know, so uh, I I uh, I'm I'm quite pleased with it. <laughs> Even uh, well, well, the, you uh, should be. You should be, sir. You should be very pleased with it. And there's one final question from me, and it's a question that I usually end most of my podcasts with. You know, what matters most to you, Russ, with your experience, with your teaching? with your education, you know, with your latest edits of the book, what matters most to you? Uh, yeah, my loved ones, really. Uh, that's what it all, all boils down to, is, is the, the people you love and being as loving as you can to the people you love. You know, it's, uh, nothing else really matters in the long term. It's, um, mm -hmm. that, that, was a, that was an easy question. <laughs> okay. 
<laughs> Very good. And um, so, Adam, any final questions from your side? Yeah, Russ, last question. <laughs> Tell me, um, you mentioned you don't often post on social media, but where can follow your work? Oh, right. Yeah. Oh, well, so I, I don't post personally. Uh, I, sorry, I, I don't post about my personal life on social media, but I post a lot about work on social media, uh, a, a massive amount, actually. Um, but it, it's never my nice holiday or you know, something <laughs> like that. Uh, so, yeah, so the for for practitioners for like mindfulness coaches or, or therapists or coaches or counselors or whatever uh the act made simple facebook group so at made simple is my main textbook on Link the below. Yeah. okay uh for members of the general public that are not kind of uh, professionals um the happiness trap facebook group actually it's called the happiness trap online facebook group okay thank you did you know that ha hashtag happiness trap on Instagram is actually trending and there's a about there's about 50,000 followers or 50,000 no entries. Yeah. So if you go, yeah, go to Instagram and just like hashtag and do the search for happiness trap, even though you're there with zero posts. <laughs> yeah. You're there official Ross Harris, you know, happiness trap official zero posts. There's actually, if you go to the, you know, happiness trap trending, Right. or the hashtag you, there's you'll see the thousands of entries that are there from people oh, around wow. the world yeah i wow. think you'd, yeah. you'd get a kick out of going through that <laughs> i'm too scared you know <laughs> no it's, it's it's all it's all goodness i, I assure you <laughs> all right so you've got your any website so you know where can people get the the latest book amazon all the the typical places you buy your books right yeah amazon book depository yeah all mm -hmm. that yeah well, just make well, sure they they uh, they get the new one not the old one <laughs> yes yes we, we want the this 50 percent new material yeah but just from the bottom of our hearts we're just truly grateful you know this idea of gratitude to be speaking with someone that's influenced us so much and that's doing mm. just such a great job in you know helping add this positive energy and um with like yeah, scalable and repeatable process that we can use and you know we just thank you for for your your wonderful contribution to that oh thanks thanks so much thanks for making it fun uh it was uh, it's nice it's late at night here but uh, it is really indeed enjoyable so go enjoy wonderful. the rest of your night thank you so much it's been great to to meet um and thank you for for your work cheers thanks don't forget to like subscribe and share if this was valuable to you as we believe this is a truly wonderful message to share Stay tuned for the podcast on the first Thursday of every month and make sure that you're signed up to the Mindful News podcast on whatever platform you currently listen to other podcasts. Mindfulnews.uk for everything else.